You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Also at that end of the table were Rose and Sid. They'd been fairly well behaved for most of the meal, but now Sid, declaring that his back was bothering him, had started pestering Rose for his medication, by which he meant one of those brownies that Rose's sister Sarah had sent from California. Rose was inclined to let Sid have one. She was thinking she wouldn't mind having a brownie herself. Rose and Sid had both become quite fond of these brownies. Sarah baked them herself using high-grade medical marijuana, which she added in far larger quantities than the standard recipe called for, on the theory that if some medicine is good for you, then more medicine must be better for you. These were potent brownies. Both Sid and Rose had found that no matter what was ailing them, they felt a lot better after eating one. Sometimes they completely forgot what had been ailing them in the first place. Once Rose had gone to the kitchen to get Sid a glass of water, and had become fascinated by the water running out of the kitchen faucet. She wound up staring at the glittering cascade for more than an hour, barely moving. Sid, sitting in the living room, had not minded. He was engrossed in listening to the subtle and fascinating interplay of droning sounds made by the vacuum cleaner, which Rose had left running. As the rehearsal dinner approached the dessert course, Rose decided it was time for her and Sid to take their medicine. She opened her massive purse and took out the plastic box filled with brownies. She set it on the serving cart next to her and began rummaging through her purse, looking for her reading glasses so she could unwrap the brownies. I have to go to the bathroom, said Sid. Rose was about to give her automatic response to Sid, which was that no, he didn't have to go to the bathroom, when it occurred to her that maybe he did, as it had been some time since his last trip. She decided that she, too, had to go. So she closed her purse, stood, and told Sid to come on. The two of them toddled slowly from the room. Dave Barry is a Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist for the Miami Herald. He's the author of some 30 books. Recent best-selling books include his Peter Pan prequels, written with Ridley Pearson, Dave Barry's History of the Millennium So Far, and I'll Mature When I'm Dead. With Alan Zweibel, he co-authored Lunatics. His new novel is Insane City. Thank you for joining me, Dave. Thanks for having me. You know, Dave, as I was reading this book, One of the things that really interested me was that we all kind of think we have plans for our lives. Inevitably, in everybody's life, something comes along to derail that careful plan. Your books do that in miniature, and this book does a fabulous job of taking an ordinary guy with an ordinary plan, and one step at a time, that plan goes completely awry. And I think that's one of the appeals, is that Our lives are mapped out in miniature as we watch Seth Weinstein's few days go down the toilet. Yeah, Seth, um, you're absolutely right. He he has no idea. He really doesn't have a plan. He's he's content to let his fiancée Tina make the plan for them, and his kind of his whole life is going to be sort of planned for him. Uh, And he's going to have a perfect wedding planned by Tina, and then a perfect life planned by Tina, who's a very wealthy, successful very type A person who's going to just take care of everything. And immediately things start to go wrong for Seth in his, in his wedding, and he becomes, he becomes a completely different person almost in, in just a few days because, because of unforeseen events that take over. As you were putting together this book, it, when we read it, it just reads like lightning. It's funny. It's sweet. It's involving. It's hilarious. And it's very tense. It feels so easy to put together. But as I was looking at it, this is a 
finely tuned machine with so many moving parts. When you sat down to write this book, did you know where you're going to go with it? I knew the ending, um, which I wanted to be kind of a sweet surprise, but it definitely I wanted it to be a surprise. I wasn't really at all, I had no idea how I was going to get there exactly. I mean, I knew things would happen. So I spent a lot of time with the moving parts part. My, my model was, was P.G. Woodhouse. Um, and the, you know, his, his Jeeves books and, and Blanding's Castle where you have a lot of people with a lot of different agendas. Nobody really knows what anybody else is up to. Um, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of misunderstanding, and, and people ricocheting off each other, and then somehow it, it comes together in the end. I wanted that kind of plot with lots of stuff happening. Uh, and that took a long time to, to just figure out, well, then if this happens here, and then what would cause this to happen there, and what, what else could happen to, to go wrong for this guy? the further derail his his wedding and how can I get to that ending that I've been I've got in my mind uh, I I love all your characters and it's clear you do too and that's one of the things I think that makes this book so much fun to read is because even the people who are not are kind of the bad guys to a certain extent we really enjoy being with everybody in this story and so I'd like you to talk about coming up with this kind of balance of people who are good and bad and putting together people who are, you know, have designs that are inimical to our hero, but still are enjoyable and likable to be around. Yeah, there, there really are no, um, this is the first fiction book I've ever written where there's no villain, really. There are people that you don't like, and there are people who are, at, at points, do unethical things, but there's nobody just pure evil. There's nobody out to destroy the world or just to hurt people for the sake of hurting them. There's people who have very different ideas about what should happen. So Seth, who really has no particular agenda, just you know to go along and get married, is one one side. Tina, his his bride, could be viewed, I guess, as a villain sort of. But all she really wants is what a lot of brides want. She wants this wedding that she has planned is going to be perfect to go ahead and, and happen. Her dad, who is not the most likable guy, a billionaire named uh, Mike Clark, just wants his daughter to have a perfect wedding because that's what she wants, and she doesn't understand why this kid Seth is messing it up. Seth's groomsmen are basically kind of bumbling idiots. They're nice enough guys, but they're, they're kind of slacker losers, and they just want to have a good time. You know, they don't mean any harm, although their behavior, behavior ends up causing trouble for Seth. Everybody's, everybody's basically just trying to, to, to get something done, and poor Seth is sort of caught in the middle of it with no clear idea what is the right thing to do? What is his real responsibility in this situation? Um, he starts out assuming he has, you know, has, he's just going to be the, the groom and he's going to, you know, it's going to, and then suddenly he discovers he has huge responsibility that he never asked for and he really wants to, to, to do the right thing, but he also wants it to go away so that he can just go ahead and party and, and you know, and that's the, the, the central dilemma is Seth's is can he just get rid of this responsibility and forget these people and go ahead and have a p perfect wedding, which is what everybody wants him to do. Um, that's his problem. I think you do a really good job of introducing the characters in this book who are, you know, in some danger, and but keeping the tone consistent with the rest of the book. And that's kind of dodgy, I, I think. You know, that must have felt, you must have approached that with some trepidation. Yeah, the heart of the plot, and it's not even, when I would tell people about the plot of the book when I was writing it, it sounds like it's not a humor book. And I would have, always have to say, well, that's kind of the heart of the plot, but it's it's really a humor book. I mean, they go, well, where's the humor? I don't get the humor. Because the heart of it is this um, Haitian woman named Lorette and two children who was paid to get out of Haiti 
by smugglers, essentially. And, and this happens regularly in Miami. People are brought to Miami from Haiti by smugglers, and, and they're not allowed to be here. You can come from Cuba to Miami, and you can stay because it's a fleeing political oppression, according to the government. But if you come from Haiti to Miami, you can't, you can't stay. They'll, they'll deport you if they catch you because you're, you're fleeing economic hardship, and that doesn't qualify. So anyway, this woman, Lorette, gets to Key Biscayne, barely, barely, and, and Seth, our groom, who doesn't have any, any awareness of the immigration situation at all, suddenly is responsible for um, this woman and her two kids. He rescues them. He's wasted on the beach the night he was supposed to have his bachelor party, which totally failed. It was, everything went wrong. He rescues them, and all he wants to do is just turn them over to the authorities, like, let, them, you know, let the hospital take care of them, let the police take care of them. But this woman doesn't want that. She, does, she just wants to stay and wants, wants to find her sister. And that's, that's Seth's problem. He has now responsibility for um, this woman and her two kids, a responsibility he didn't ask for and has never imagined having. And that, of course, conflicts horrendously with the whole point of the wedding, which is to be this wonderful, perfect, carefree occasion at this beautiful hotel, which now, now he has to deal with, with two Haitians in his room being cared for by a stripper that he also didn't want. Um, so it's not an easy uh, weekend for Seth, our, our boy. You have a lot of fun with the wedding industry, and it must have been fun to research this stuff, I think, to look this up. Fun is not, no, I mean, I guess you could say fun. I actually had to pay for a wedding. <laughs> so, my son got married a couple of years ago, and I was very involved in the wedding planning, and I got to watch at close range the what I call the wedding industrial complex, where, you know, the florist is no longer a florist, it's a floral installation artist, the caterer, and the cake, and the, the you know, the, the bridesmaids' favors, and the groomsmen's favors, and the this, and all the details of the wedding just sort of slowly overwhelm the wedding itself. And after a while, you sort of forget that there's a couple getting married. You just sort of see this poor woman, the bride, caught up in this process, going crazier and crazier, trying to, trying to get this thing more and more perfect, per, you know. And the groom getting sort of slowly pushed off to the side because he's not really involved in any of this. The groom is like a minor appendage to the modern American wedding. You're not even sure he's going to be invited so that was my research, really, was watching my son's wedding. And then when it's over, when they have the wedding, you know, everything goes back to normal. The bride becomes sane again. She realizes, oh, it was just a party, like everybody said. And now the real part is what happens after the wedding. But you cannot explain that to a bride, you know, before it's happening. They, they get so focused on and so, so intent about their wedding, the ceremony part. Is there really a groom's cake? There is really a groom's cake. My son had one, and, and they were claiming that this is some old Southern tradition. And so I asked the few old Southerners I know, and none of them have never heard of any such tradition. I think it's just one more thing that was invented to make the wedding more expensive. <laughs> There's no end to the... So it's, it, it's, uh, the, the day of the wedding, of course, they have the wedding cake, which is a big deal, and it costs a trillion dollars, and you have to get you know, somebody to design your wedding cake and on the cake topper and all these, you know. Did you have somebody design your cake topper? I didn't have anything to do with it, but they oh. did have a special cake topper. Yeah, so there's a whole industry, there's a whole cake topper industry. Um, but now the groom cake is that's served at the rehearsal dinner traditionally in, in the old South. Of course, it never did happen, but now now we pretend it did, and we have it. You know, it's one more thing to do is to order a groom's cake, and then, of course you have to confectioner make your cake, and yeah, you know, it has to have a theme, and it has to. So just one more way to make the wedding more complicated and expensive, and one more thing that has really nothing to do with weddings if you think about it. 
One of the things I like about your books, and this book in particular, is long, long ago in the dark ages of the internet, before there were, was a web, they used to have news groups. Yeah. Where people would post things. And my favorite news group was, a, or one of my favorites, was one called Alt.Peeves, where people would just post essentially an essay about something that peeved them. And some uh -huh. of those, these things were really quite well written. And what you managed to do in this book, I think, in many cases, is turn peeves into plots. Uh -huh. And I think that's, it's really fun to see you do that. Well, there's one, I don't know if this is what you're referring to, but I have one part where a thug is trying to buy some diapers. And he has, for the legitimate plot reason, he's got, you know, he needs to get diapers. And he gets stuck in line. This is an armed thug. Gets stuck in line at, in the drugstore behind. There's only one other customer in the drugstore, but it happens to be an older woman with coupons. And he just wants to buy his diapers and get out of there. And this scene takes a place where this woman, she, you know, she starts, she's got this giant stack of coupons she starts going through, you know, for the two, coupon for the toothpaste. And the clerk says, no, well, we, you don't have that for the right one. You have it for this. And she has, they have to discuss that at length, you know. And then, then she moves on to the next thing, which is chapstick. And she also has a coupon for that. She has to find it. And then, like, the, no, you don't have the right coupon. This is actually a, you know. So there's this long discussion. And we, we have all been that guy standing behind that woman in the line. Uh, but I mean, I, yeah, right. I turned it into a, a kind of lengthy scene in the book. Uh, while things are going on outside, he needs to get back out, get going. He can't because he's stuck behind this, this woman. Uh, that scene points up, I think, one of your great uh, skills is uh, using the language and excavating the absurdities out of the English language because the product names in that, and the yeah, way yeah. you compare that, it's it's hysterical, but they're, it's true. And it, Yeah, I went to, uh, you know, that's the beauty of the Internet. I went to, you know, I have him, first of all. He, he comes in, he's a thug, he has no kids, he just... He comes in and he needs to buy diapers. And, and, you know, in the old days, there would have been diapers, just, you know, you know, disposable diapers. Now there's like 53 kinds of disposable diapers. There's all nighty or you know, whatever. So he has to first decide which one. And then he has to go, you know, it's just the, the consumer experience gets harder and harder for this guy who, who's really just a thug trying to get rid of some people. But One of the things that you do really well is use the truth as a source of humor, and you do this again and again, and I think it's it's a lot of fun, and I'd like you to talk about, like, creating that kind of, uh, the gap between, that gets us from just being true to act the fact that something is true is funny. I've always felt that when people really find something funny, it's not because it's something they never would have thought of, you know, not because you took some wild leap of imagination but because you say something that they know is absolutely true. You make, I think a lot of the heart of a lot of humor is just that. It's just pointing out something that we all think, but nobody says it. And, and so I try to make the plot, I'm trying to make the, the humor come from, yeah, I mean, there are things that probably wouldn't really happen. You know, that probably an orangutan is unlikely to get hold of somebody's wedding ring, as, as happens in this book. Um, but most of the time, I, I, try, I try to think the things that, that happen to people that make them act the way they do, they make them get crazy, they are all things that really do happen to people, could happen to people easily. And the whole idea of a wedding really as not really a sane thing. You know, we, we take it for granted what happens, the way, we, the way we spend gigantic sums of money on these events and put, invest huge importance in things like the cake or the dress 
or the, the or the when you think about you realize nobody really thinks it's that you know I mean there there really is no particular reason to see it as so important, or we honestly believe that if we we hire a videographer we, which you now is de rigueur for a wedding, that you know pay somebody a couple of thousand dollars to make a deep you know, to take a. 19 different angles of everything that happens on video and put it into this DVD with music and everything that anyone will ever want to actually watch that again, you know, because really we just, it's just, you know, it's just something we go to and then there's a party and then it's over. That's where, that's where humor comes from is just, the, you know, the kind of silly things that we do that we don't, we don't see as silly or we don't acknowledge as silly while we're doing them. At one point, you say it seemed that at least half the products at the supermarket offended her. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Tina, Tina is a, a very she's a very politically correct person, and she's got she's a a lawyer in New York. I mean, excuse me, in Washington, and, and works for a very cause oriented law firm. And uh, that's when when Seth meets her. Seth doesn't you know he meets her at a rally where she's protesting for or against something. Seth can't remember which, and he only is interested in her because she's hot. He's he's actually going by to play frisbee frisbee football, and then. He he sees her and goes over and introduces her, and he never does admit to her that he he didn't actually show up to you know to, to be part of the rally. But yeah, Tina Tina has got a lot of causes. She will not use you know she he never figures out why, but we, they can never go to a Starbucks, for example. They're boycotting Starbucks. He doesn't know why. And and as you say, many products in the, in the supermarket bother her, and she wants to have a green wedding, even though they're basically flying all these people to Miami. It's going to be green when they get there. So she has a. Everything costs millions and millions of dollars, but it's green. You know, it's recyclable. It's whatever. The way I think this plot works, I, you you refer to, to it, some things as being slightly unbelievable, but I think that you're really a master of what I would call the boiling a frog yeah, style yeah. That's of right. plotting. You, yeah, you, you want to – yeah, let's say I'm, I'm reluctant to say out loud that, that an orangutan gets hold of the wedding ring because it sounds like, well, what? An orangutan just walks up and grabs the wedding ring. No, if you read the book, you see, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about how would it happen that the suitcase that Seth got his wedding ring in would end up at a place called Primate Encounter where it gets put in a, put down on the ground within reach of an orangutan named Trevor. And, and yeah, it's like you say, boiling frog, you, this, this happens and the suitcase ends up here and you can understand that, you understand each thing happens, there's a reason that it happens and ultimately, yes, the result is that the orangutan does get hold of the wedding ring, but I, I try very hard to explain how that could really happen so that when it happens, you don't go, oh, that's not possible. Or there's another scene where if I were to say, well, there's a, a ship chase and a pirate ship fends off the ship ch- attacking ship by shooting uh, frozen chicken nuggets at it through a cannon. That might sound like, a well, kind of, a, you know, what sh- pirate ship fires chicken nuggets? But it does in, in the book. And I contend I get there in a fairly plausible way in the world of book land anyway. But yeah, I think that's important to me. I don't like books where the author just says, now this happens. You know, some... And it just doesn't fit in with the reality that's been created by the book. But once you have, you know, set it up, you know, this is Miami, crazy things are happening, this is, you know, and you take some time to get there, as you say, with with the frog boiling, in the end, you know, people go along. They go along with it. It it strikes me to a certain extent what you're doing is what is called in the science fiction world, world building. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the dune, they make the desert world. You make Miami into this kind of world where these things can happen. Right. And, and all my, I think all fiction is world building. You know, it's very, um, you're always picking, a, you know, a facet of, 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 of the universe and, 
and and saying this is this is the rules or the, you're creating a little universe and saying these are the rules of this universe. In Miami, where I like to set my fiction, it's 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 not that much of a stretch because this is a very weird city. Miami is a very very weird city. I've lived there uh, for over 25 years, and I I'm sort of used to the fact that it's you know it's the way it is, but. If, if you compare it to a normal American city, it, nothing about it is the same. I mean, it, the wildlife is very different. The people are very different. Just the whole culture of Miami is very different um, from any place I've ever lived. So the world building there is, yes, there's a, you know, there's a guy uh, walking around with a snake. And then he kind of wears it, an 11-foot albino python, as a fashion accessory in my book. That's part of the world. But there are those guys in Miami. They really do exist. Um, yes, in my book, in my world, the guys, one of the reasons that the room gets into so much trouble at the very beginning is he tries to take a taxi from Miami International Airport to Key Biscayne, a major destination, and the taxi driver is unable to find Key Biscayne. But that really happens in Miami. Those, those taxi drivers are there because I know, because I, I live there and I've gotten in the taxi and been and had drivers unable to find things that were, you know, pretty major parts of the city, which you think a cab driver would know. It's sort of a standard thing for a cab driver to know how to get places, but not in Miami. So that's, that's a world where it may feel as though I'm creating this really different world, but I feel it's a fairly realistic depiction, maybe not of every event, as it would happen, but how it feels to be in Miami, the sort of sense of slightly out-of-control craziness that pervades that city um, is what I try to try to make the world be in my book. It seems very realistic. I mean, I, it, I'm, it makes me kind of, of two minds of one of the, I, mean, I want to go there. <laughs> that said, uh, one of the, the true things you talk about that I really enjoyed was Trevor and the orangutan. And it, I just think it's so interesting how, how strong these apes are and how funny that seems. You do a great job. And also when you get into Trevor's point of view, that's just great. Oh, yeah. I, I love Trevor. And the thing is, when I, when I started writing the book, he, he kind of came in late. I went to visit a tourist attraction in Miami called Jungle Island with my family and some, some out-of-town visitors. And I got fascinated by the orangutan cage. They, they, they're really amazing-looking animals. They're strange-looking, kind of weird-looking. They're not gorillas. They're, they're more human-looking than gorillas, but in a kind of weird, distorted way. Their eyes are really close together, and they have these huge cheek pouches, and they just look very soulful. And they're smart. I started, so I did a little research of orangutans, um, you know, their behavior. And one of the things I did discover is they're, very, they're immensely powerful animals, very, very strong. And I thought, well, maybe I could use an orangutan. So that's when I created the scene where Trevor gets, Trevor the orangutan gets hold of Seth's wedding ring. And because I just wanted there to be a scene where Seth has to deal with an orangutan to get his wedding ring back. But, and that was going to be it for Trevor. But he really was such a great character. And I really liked him. I liked the way he thought. You know, he's kind of, he's kind of, he's got a soul. He's got a personality. He's, he's a little horny. He's been caged alone for a long time. And he's, he's, He's looking for female companionship, so he falls in love with this woman, Cindy, that is, that's been helping Seth out. And then he falls later and falls in love with, with the uh, sister of the bride. So he's, he's really in a romantic, it becomes kind of a romantic lead in the, in the, in the uh, book. And he just kind of fought his way into the plot and became, became a key character all the way through. So I, I'm very fond of Trevor. And he's a, he's a lot of fun. One of the things that I think you do very well 
is you give us these pocket personal histories as a little bit of to introduce a character or somebody who comes in. And it does two things. It makes every character who walks into this book seem really real. And also, they're hysterical. And I, I really love that kind of style when you when we meet somebody and all of a sudden you give them their history, like the history of the guy who runs the... Uh, the, the history a primate of, encounter a primate encounter or i love uh, a bazu da, ba, banzan dazu <laughs> yeah who's the guru who yeah. actually started out as a record producer and i can't remember what the name he was originally but uh norman cole cochran yeah norman he was a, a record promoter in philly you know and um and and um that he decided he he could have a lot more sex if he became a a, a spiritual leader so he become he changes his name and is sort of like a follower of the dalai lama and he is going to conduct the wedding. Uh, Tina's a, uh, the bride is a big believer in him, and uh, he, yeah. And you're right. I mean, I kind of do that for myself as much for, as I do for the reader. You know, like here's this guy, and just here's a little about him. So you'll you, you, that way I don't have to wait a, waste a lot of time with um, having characters explain themselves. You know, they just sort of start doing things. Well, I, I, I'm, and you get bonus points for throwing in earth, wind, and fire. Shining. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's one point after everybody's had medical marijuana and not realized it, where Bonz and Dazu's on the beach, you know, uh, offering pearls of wisdom, which were actually lyrics from earth, wind, and fire songs, but nobody recognizes it. They think, wow, that's so deep. That's so profound. You have a lot of fun with uh, marijuana, medical, and otherwise in this book. My favorite part to write it, to write it of this book is there's a, a character named uh, Marty, who is the uh, best man of, of Seth, and he, mm-hmm. he's one of my favorite characters in the book. He wants to be a lawyer, but basically he's a terrible student, and he's, so all he really has is like a giant debt and, and through a third-tier law school. But he keeps trying to be people's lawyers throughout uh, the book, even though nobody really wants him to. He's just a complete loser. He lives at home with his parents and plays World of Warcraft. He's just a loser. And he ends up, becoming friends with a guy named Wendell Corliss, who is the extreme opposite, extreme opposite end of the, of the socioeconomic and, and a success spectrum, who's a billionaire industrialist, venture capitalist guy, who's just world-renowned, scared, feared by everyone, a very tough businessman, who is invited to the wedding by the father of the bride, who doesn't want him, of course, to have anything to do with Marty, the loser, best man. But because of medical marijuana, which they both ingest at the rehearsal dinner without realizing it, high-grade medical marijuana, they end up sitting together and having one of those conversations that you have under the influence of marijuana, where you have all these what you believe to be great insights that really aren't. They're just kind of dopey medical marijuana observations. But I love the conversations that the two of them have, where the slacker and the, you know, the billionaire kind of see each other, finally, for the first time, see the other guy's point of view. They've never really thought about it. And they have these, these, these long, rambling conversations. I also love the fact, and this, I, 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 this was just a scene that I had in my mind when I started writing. I wanted more than anything to get into the book was that they would, be, they would, be, they would get the munchies on the beach and solve that problem um, by purchasing a restaurant, <laughs> which is something you can do if you're a billionaire venture, venture capitalist and you need pizza and the, they don't deliver from the local restaurant. Fine, you'll buy the local restaurant, you know. Well, I think what uh, that conversation uh, also points out, there's a couple of things it points out. One is those are really nice characters. I mean, it, you, again, uh, the the industrialist who gets a, a middle name. For, yeah. For, he gives himself a middle name yeah. that we can't what, say. What, we could say, we'd say Wendell Freaking Corliss yeah. is how he refers to himself. Yeah. Uh, 
the the uh, you create these characters. Uh, Wendell at first seems like you say like a guy who's nobody would like. He becomes a very likable character. And Marty, who seems like kind of an unredeemable screw-up, also becomes a really likable character. Yeah, you, I love them both, and yeah. I love the way they talk to each other. And I also love Marty kind of teaches, well, they both teach each other something. But at one point, they have what is supposed to be this big revelation. You know, Wendell's going like, so you're, are because, you know, he, Marty is lamenting that he never studied and, you know, he's a complete loser. And Wendell is lamenting that he never, you know, smoked pot and listened to music, you know. And he's saying, well, maybe I should have done that. And Marty goes, no, then you'd end up like me. <laughs> like, and Wendell's like, so this isn't like deep, insightful. And Marty goes, no, no, when you wake up, this will be really stupid, you know, so. <laughs> But they still enjoy themselves. Well, but this also points up is how dialogue-driven this book is and how sharp the dialogue is and how much fun it is to read on the page. We look at this. When I open this book and look through it, I think, boy, this is going to be a lot of fun. And it is. But keeping that dialogue ball floating and the way you do to make sure we always know who's talking and what's going on, that you make it look really easy. But I imagine that it is very difficult for you to pull off when you're doing this. I spend a lot of time on, on dialogue. I like it. I like writing it. I like listening to how people talk and trying to reproduce it in, pen, in print, which can be tricky. But you're right. You raise a good point because this is going to sound technical and writerly. But when you have two people talking... You don't have to keep saying, John said, you know, well, I don't agree with that, Bob said. Yes, you do, John said. At some point, you just just use the quotes because everybody knows who the two people are. But then every now and then, it may, you know, somebody might interrupt somebody, and then you have to go back to, you have to remind the reader who was saying what. Or if a third party appears, or if somebody does something that's significant, and you have to insert, you know, some statement of, of action, then you get back to the quotes that you have to say they said it. Or, so you have to think... Uh, uh, I end up spending a lot of, probably more time reading the dialogue out loud to myself, or at least in my head, than on, on dialogue than I do on any other, any other kind of writing I do. Would it really sound like, would somebody really say that? Would it, what would it sound like? Would the pause be there? Uh, would the break be there? Would the interruption occur there? And if you, and if you get it right, it, you know, it, it reads really quickly and easily, and people are not confused. But it's easy to, easy to confuse people. And it's also easy to make it cumbersome with too much attribution, too much description, you know. That's why Elmer Leonard, you know, if you really want to see how you, you know, you can get across a conversation that sounds utterly real, never have any confusion about who's saying what or what they're thinking or what they're doing, and yet almost no description at all. Almost, Elmer Leonard is just the master of that. He's just, he's brilliant at that. And that's like when I when I write a, a conversation between two people, I'm always thinking about how he did how he does that. There's a lot of great sentences in this book. <laughs> There's a lot of sentences, a lot of <laughs> sentence fragments, also. No, but I, I think that that's one of the things that you I can see. There are so many um, places where you really pay careful attention to balancing the language in a way to give us that kind of laugh in the sentence and craft uh, all these great sentences that make it really fun to read. Again, we don't necessarily think about that unless you're some kind of dweeby geek who fills his book with stickies. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so talk about uh, just crafting the sentences. Do these all pour off the tip of your pen or do they have to kind of, do you have to go back and say, well, I got to, I got to pump up that paragraph? Um, n neither. Neither. They don't pour off the, the pen. Um, that's for sure. Um, it's, I'm a slow writer. Um, but I, I generally don't go back. I mean, I'll, I really will not leave a, a sentence until I'm pretty sure it's absolutely the right one or the best I could do. 
uh, go on to the next the next one. But I mean, that's what I I don't I don't know there are people who do this. And I don't know how they do it. Who just kind of first draft they just whip through it. But to me, I don't even know what you're whipping through if you're not you know getting every sentence right. You know, to me, so much depends on how you said a certain thing or what a character said. The plot. I mean, if you're just just getting the action down, that wouldn't be that many words. You, you know, I could write the book in, you know, a day if it were that. If we're just getting the action down, so I'm really slow. But when I'm done with the, you know, that sentence, that paragraph, that chapter, I'm usually pretty much done for good. And you know, before I go on to the next one. You know, uh, you talked a little bit about Florida. I think that um, the. The setting of Florida is really, you know, one of the main characters in this book, and, and it's an interesting character because it picks up. It it's a two has a two way street with everybody. People who um, both reflect Florida, they they reflect aspects of it, but they're also affected of, by it and pick up from it. So somebody like Seth shows up, and and he's maybe kind of more corn fed or normal, but. Boy, but it didn't take him long to catch the disease. Yeah, Miami is a character. Miami is the, in a way, the main character of the of the book. That's why it's called Insane City. Is the the premise is that somehow whatever you intended to do is kind of what you said at the very beginning. You know, whatever your plan was for your life, Miami will thwart it. You know, it will find a way to subvert and thwart it. And this happens to so many people who come to Miami. You know, they come thinking one thing and they end up doing something completely different. It's not It's not a serious place, Miami. You don't think of people like, I'm going to go to Miami and build a career there. I mean, it could be done, I suppose, but it's not really the kind of city where that's what you do. You know, that's New York. You go to New York to have a serious career. You go to Washington to have a serious career. Miami, you go to get away, to escape, to party, or to participate in some industry that people don't take that seriously, you know. So, yeah, Miami's a big character in this book. And I think that, you know, you do a great job of giving us descriptions of the place. Uh, the prose, you know, where you, and, and it's sparse, but very, very evocative. And, and I think that's really effective because it keeps the, the pace ticking. But Well, I hate books. I'll be <laughs> honest. I hate books where you read a long description of a place before they anything happens. I know there are people who are masterful at it. But most writers are not. <laughs> it's just a lot of words. And, you know, you learn to read past that sometimes. You know, just, okay, he's going to talk about the farm road, you know, the farm road winding up to the farm, you know, for, for like the next 400 words. I'll just get to the farm, you know. Nothing's happening on the road. We just, you know. So I don't like that. I like, and again, this is an Elmore Leonard thing. He doesn't describe anything. Very little, very, very little. It just lets things happen. And I like books where things happen much more than I like books where things get described. One thing I, I think that uh, is is a lot of fun in here are the kind of rhythms and riffs that you strike. Uh, there's one the scene, there's one scene with I'm gonna what's his name uh, Banzan Dazu mm -hmm. where the guru who's running who's performing the wedding ceremony yeah the guru and also trying to get, you know get have sex with everybody he every woman he encounters and well there's this great scene where. He's where you're doing kind of two different humor riffs at once. One is what he's saying, which is just such complete and yeah, utter yeah, BS. Yeah. And then also you're describing his hands moving around. <laughs> he's trying to feel up. Trying, yeah, yeah. He's got his hands on the bride. bride. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so talk about, and you do that in various ways. Uh, when you're architecting that kind of thing, do you think, okay, here's my chance to do a kind of uh, 
rhythm and you know, call and response, I guess, that it almost is. Yeah, and, 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 and also here's my chance to, to mock the whole spirituality move. <laughs> but yeah, um, he was kind of an easy... Anyway, he comes the closest, I think, to being like a cartoonish figure in this book. Is the, is Except that, you know, if you... There are people like him. You know, there are people who are just phony gurus and and um i you know i just i guess i've seen too many of them in my my so i wanted i wanted to to take a stab at him uh and indirectly through him to at the dalai lama no kidding dalai lama's great personal you, friend you you did you did a great <laughs> job with the dalai lama i, I know. thought i thought well you know God, i'm gonna just the... confess to you why i wrote that i i know the dalai lama is a great human being i really do i believe that everybody who tells me that i just have never read a single thing he said that didn't sound like be nice you know <laughs> So I'm never quite sure what is, you know, so uh, deep about the Dalai Lama. I guess what I'm trying to say is where's the, the beef, <laughs> Mr. Lama? But it, so anyway, I kind of did mock him a little bit in there. Well, it, it's very effective, but it doesn't come off as mean-spirited. And that's one thing about humor. It's very easy to be mean-spirited in humor. And that's sometimes called for and funny. There's no doubt about it. But... This book, there's not an ounce of that in this book. No, I really kind of like all the characters. Even the like, uh, there's these two, the, the two thugs, Castanovo and Brewer, who are basically the the, the Tinkerbells. Yeah, the Tinkerbell. They call the Tinkerbells. They used to be New York City police detectives, and they were forced off the force because a surprising number of the, the men they were the, the criminals they were supposed to take into custody elected to leap off of buildings. <laughs> And so their, their fellow police officers called them the Tinkerbells because of their ability to make, make people fly if only for short periods of time. Anyway, but even them, and they are the heavies. I mean, they're, they're the guys who are, they're not, they're not evil, but they're carrying out orders. And they're, you know, if they succeed in carrying out their orders, it will be bad for, for the Haitian woman and, and her kids. I can't bring myself to dislike them. They just are trying to do their job. They're kind of insensitive people but in the end i like them enough to you know i i try to make them funny um and, well they're fun and, they're, and the only thing bad happened to them in the end yeah. you know I, one thing i was thinking about this book is that uh, there's we all know there's all these shows on uh tv uh, the csi shows and the appeal for me of those csi shows is that I don't know anything about any of that stuff. But when they sit down, what they'll do is they'll say, okay, we have 100, we have 1,000 pieces of glass we have to put together. Yeah, yeah. And, and they put it together and it's this crime lab and you think, well, anybody could do that with uh, enough time. I could do that. It's just, you just have to deal one after the other after the other. And that's kind of the appeal of all those kind of procedural shows is that it's, it looks like a very specialized craft, but you just have to go all figure out that A comes after B comes after A and go through the alphabet. And I think that the appeal of this book for me is that you get Seth into these problems and you get into deeper and deeper and deeper. And every problem, time he tries to solve a problem, maybe about two more pop up. It's it's a whack-a-mole kind of thing. But for the reader, it's fun to see Seth. And you can go follow Seth, go through, okay, now you're going to have to take care of this one and that one and that one. And that, that's, I think, one of the real fun things about this book. Yeah, the, the, the whole plot comes down to what way now can I think of to make things even worse for Seth? You know, it's really just everything, everything conspires against him. He is, um, you know, he's, he's never really even close to catching up to all the problems that keep multiplying around him. 
all the way through. And and what I wanted to happen was, and, and I hope it did happen, is that it changes him. You know, he ultimately, be, because things have gone so wrong for him, he's sort of stripped of all the, the superficial views he had about what he was doing and his wedding and who he is and everything. And he, gets, he sort of gets down to the, sort of this desperate, you know, def, desperate quest to just just try to do one thing right. And it changes him. And he becomes, by the end of the, you know, and I don't want to get all novelist about it, but he, he's the one character that really has an arc. I mean, he, things really change for him uh, in the course of the, uh, that, this weekend. And at the end of it, he, he, he makes a really, really difficult decision, but he, may, you know, and, and, but he is permanently changed as a result of that. And I can't remember really what your question is, but that's my answer. <laughs> well, I think well, it is a, it's a, it's a, the correct answer <laughs> as such things go. But I think that, and that's, one, again, one of the appeals of, the, of this novel is that for all the fun we have and all the things that happen is you really do give us a true character who undergoes the, <clears throat> the classic, this, these events change this character in a, in a manner that's really enjoyable. And that's, again, very difficult to, to pull off. Did you, I mean, when you set out to write this, it's, you know, it's, you could describe this as a farce. Did you think that that was going to be the, the linchpin around which yeah, I mean, I knew I knew from the very start that that's what I wanted to have happen, and to be about to matter. You know, that he is the heart of the book, and that what happens to him and how he changes is the heart of the book. What I've learned over the years is you have to do it, let it happen organically as you write it. I think that a, a rookie mistake a writer makes, and I make used to. I mean, I I, I don't want to say I don't make mistakes anymore, but this is something I, I know I was guilty of. You. Because you know at the very beginning that a person is going to be A and then it's going to turn into B. You start trying too hard to to foreshadow that or to make the A part really obvious and the B part, you know, and the, here's the change happening here. You know, you, you show the reader too much um, of your, your machinations. You don't let it just happen. And, and so in this book, I wanted to just let it be really little things that, that as, as you go through the book, Things, little things Seth sees or says or just notices that, that, that create the, the change at the end. That, so when it does happen, you go, oh, okay, I can, so I, could, I understand why that happened to him because I've been watching this with him as he goes through it and feeling these changes, feeling these um, observations with him as he goes through. So, but I always knew that was going to be the heart of the book was, that, was Seth's dilemma, Seth's moral dilemma and how he becomes a person at the end who makes a decision that he never would have made. On Friday, he, he never would have made the decision that he ends up making on Sunday. And I think that that's extremely well-crafted because we like him at first, but we think, well, you know, he's maybe... Kind of a lightweight. Yeah, yeah. Maybe a bit vapid, but... Yeah, yeah. But, and that's also the result, I think, of something that's interesting that underlies this book is you've got the, the Seth and the Groom Squad are three people who are have, you know, gone through the traditional, you know, American education system. They've gone to college. They've done everything. And they have ended up in living in their parents' house. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was that part was easy. I mean, I have a 32-year-old son, and he fortunately is successfully employed, and he's doing fine. But I know a lot of people that age, you know, through him and just in general. And that, that is a generation I would not want to be part of. You know, they're, they have a rough time. The economy's not great for them. The career paths that were really obvious when I was, you know, I graduated from college in 1969, and 
it almost didn't matter what you majored in. It almost didn't matter what your grades were in college. You could go out into the economy, and you might not start at a great, you know, great job or a great company, but if you stuck around and were reasonably competent uh, and you had a college degree, you would do okay. I mean, you were going to do okay in the American economy, you know, through the 70s, 80s. Whatever. There were ups and downs, but basically you were going to eventually, you know, be able to get a house somewhere. You're going to pay your, you know, have a mortgage and a car and everything. And, and the company that you worked for would be around for a while and you would have a pension. And, you know, those things were pretty much givens when I, when I got out of college. It is nowhere, I mean, it's a completely different world for young people now. People of the A, well, Seth's and his friends are more in their, like, mid-late 20s. They don't have any of those things. They don't have any, there's no guarantee. They don't know which, you know, what major will get them what job. They're just, and if the company will even continue to exist or, you know, everything, everything is so uncertain, I think, for them. And that's, that's where these guys are. They, they view themselves, too, as, as pretty much failures to the point where they don't even think in terms of careers, really. They just, they're just, you know, hanging around. You also uh, mine awkward social situations well. And I'm thinking of when we meet uh, Duane and Blossom. <laughs> The, when those situations where you're just where you look at somebody and go, oh my God, I'm going to have to interact with this person. <laughs> I, I really don't want to. Yeah, Dwayne is a um, a guy based on real guys in Miami. He's the guy who goes around with a snake, an 11 foot albino python named Blossom, wrapped around him, and he he makes a living posing, among other things, posing for photos with tourists or just generally walking around with this python. There are people who do that in Miami. It's not unusual to see a guy with a big snake. I don't know who's really, you know, finds that appealing. <laughs> so early on, Seth encounters Dwayne, and Dwayne sort of works his way into the wedding party, the bachelor party, um, this impromptu bachelor party that breaks out at the Clevelander, um, which is a bar on South Beach. And uh, Seth doesn't want anything to do with his, you know, kind of, rednecky guy with a giant snake, but Dwayne is friends with this woman named Cindy who's also kind of worked her way into the bachelor's party, who's a very hot woman, so they kind of tolerate Dwayne. But but then very quickly things go start Seth has huge problems over there, mostly involved notifying the fact that he drank way too much alcohol. And he is suddenly in at the mercy of, of Dwayne. I mean, Dwayne and Cindy, these two people, his, he loses his, his groom posse, or really they lose him. Everybody's kind of too drunk to, to pay attention. And suddenly he, he's kind of in trouble, you know, he's, and he's, he can't find anybody. He's really, he's really hammered. Um, and he's lost his suitcase that has his wedding ring in it. And he has to rely on Dwayne, who turns out to be a much better person than, you know, he, and he, he kind of realizes this guiltily. You know, this guy who he looks at as this loser, you know, snake guy, Actually, he's kind of honorable and decide, you know, offers to help him, gets him to his hotel, d- tries to go looking for the, the suitcase. And that's kind of Seth's first discovery that things that he thought were one way, you know, he's there on his wedding. He's the, you know, he's the groom, the wedding party and everything, and everything's going to be fine. And this guy's just some loser snake guy on the streets of Miami. Now it's kind of turned around. Seth's the guy who's in trouble. He, he's the one who screwed up and got drunk and lost his wedding ring. And this, this guy who he, you know, he dismissed as a nobody or, or somebody he didn't want to be around is actually going to be important to him and, and helpful to him and, and kind of his friend uh, when his, his real friends have you know, lost him already because they're just too drunk. So. Now, uh, t- 
tell us what you're working on now. Are you working on another novel? Um, no. I, I, um, the, the previous book that I wrote all by myself <laughs> was a, a collection of essays called I'll Mature When I'm Dead. And my next book is going to be another collection of essays. I don't know what it's going to be called, but what, what happens is over, like, the course of a couple of years, I will have a, a, a number of things happen that I'll think I'd like to write about. It's more than just a column, just some issue or, or experience or whatever that I'd like to write about. And then I'll, I'll collect that into a, a collection of original essays, and that'll be my next book, which I haven't started writing because I'm out here promoting this book, but, yeah. Well, I'll be certainly looking forward to that. I've been speaking with Dave Barry. His new novel is Insane City. Thank you for joining me, Dave. It's a pleasure. You, you do such a great job, so thorough, so thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.